Hello, world. Hey. Hi. 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 Hello. Hello. Hi. It's like I've forgotten how to say hello. <laughs> hey, hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Life with Kaka, the show where we shine a light on producers from all corners of the entertainment industry and dig into the messy parts of their journey, hence the Kaka. I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. Whether you're a first-time listener or been with me since the jump, welcome to the show. I am elated that the stars aligned and you somehow found me in the interwebs. Let's consider this our meet cute. Today on the show, you'll hear from Eli Ash, head of production at Mustache Agency. Some of you may recall that last summer, I was lucky enough to produce a commercial in the Dominican Republic for Secrets Resort and Spa. Well, Eli worked at the agency that hired me to have the most fun I've probably ever had on a job. The hardest part of that gig was making sure the crew stayed sober during working hours. An all-inclusive with an open bar? Well, that's a scary thing when you're wearing your producer fedora. Eli has deep roots in the world of advertising and commercials. She loves things that most people hate. Spreadsheets, organization, planning, and budgeting. I legit get excited just reading that. I mean, imagine the pens, the colors, the tabs. (sighs) She has produced for many companies like Complex Media, Vice, and Warner Brothers Records. She has produced music videos for many artists, such as g Easy and Housley. She's worked with many brands, such as Nike, Dove, Swell, Clinique, and Honda. Yes, she's very impressive. It is no wonder that since this recording a few months ago, she started a new position in a similar role at Netflix. Congrats, Eli. So, this week, she dives deep into the transition from the freelance hustle to going in-house at Mustache, what life is like as head of production, and the challenges facing the advertising industry. She also gives the best five-minute explanation of how an agency and a production collaborate to create a commercial. You'll get in five minutes what took me a year to learn. (laughs) Lucky you. I can't wait to hear what you think of this week's episode. So without further ado, let's dive in and hear from Eli. Glad that you were enthusiastic about it and wanted to do it, so... Yeah, I think it's really fun. I'm glad that you're doing this. Also, I wish that this existed when I was a kid. Yeah, same. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Same. This is this is so exciting because, you know, it's as as listeners may may remember, last summer, I had this really cool opportunity to produce a commercial in the Dominican Republic. And it was through your agency that was part of the the whole thing that was putting it together. But uh, you and I had engaged over email so many times and I really was convinced that you were going to be coming to the DR. And I I was like, ooh, it's going to be so cool. Eli's going to be there and I'll (laughs) tell her about this podcast. I like, I brought all my podcast stuff just in case. I was like, maybe I'll do an interview like from live from the DR. Ah. I was like so excited about it, but that never happened. (laughs) However, I did, I did manage to still release episodes during the shoot. Like I was up till like 3 a.m. one of the nights before our like 5 a.m. call getting an episode out. So (laughs) that's the hustle right there in a nutshell. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's exciting to finally be meeting you via Zoom FaceTime. (laughs) But it was it was such a cool experience. It's definitely one of the highlights of last year for me. It was just such a fun job. And I love the vendor down there too, Cinefilms. I wish I had, I had like was dying to go, um, but it yeah. just didn't pan out with everything else that was on the plate. Next time. Absolutely. Well, awesome. So take us to the beginning. Tell us a little bit about you and how you discovered producing. I, I always like to call it my hero's journey. 
or like my origin mm, story, <laughs> like the mythology. Yeah. I actually started as a child actor. And so I was exposed to sets like really young between like seven. And I think the last time I did anything, I was like 13 or 14. Um, but I did a lot of, I grew up in Florida, so I did a lot. Wait, where in Florida? In Orlando, like right oh. by Disney and Universal. Yeah, I went to UCF. Oh, were you, you're a knight. Yes, okay. yes. <laughs> but yeah, I uh, grew up obviously having early exposure to sets and through acting or doing really bad acting, I should say, and basically would like run around on the set and like poke the AD or poke like the grip and be like, what's your job? What do you do? Uh, and I was more interested in what was going on behind the scenes and everybody who had a walkie talkie and what they were up to. I just got so bored sitting around waiting all the time. Um, and wasn't really interested in acting, it turned out. So my mom actually was like, hey, that's also a job. And like, you seem really interested in that. So maybe we look for roads forward for you to get experience or exposure in those different behind the scenes roles. And so that led Mm. to me doing a lot of stuff, frankly, in high school, some under the table, quite frankly, (laughs) PA work. Uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And then immediately, obviously decided, well, I'm going to go to film school then. And this is what I'm going to do. And I didn't know I wanted to be a producer out of the hat. I just knew I wanted to work in production. I loved being on set. I loved everything about making video mm-hmm. um like every school project was a video it was just I was always very like single-minded on that I never had a backup plan yeah. I never had a moment where I was like I'll be an astronaut or a lawyer it was always I'm gonna work in production I'm gonna work in production um so yeah I, I had a pretty traditional trajectory from there after of like starting as a PA to coordinating to production managing to line producing all in Florida no, New York I went to film school in Florida at the University of Miami, and then I went and moved to New York immediately after that, Um, and then traditional trajectory, sorry, from there, Mm -hmm. and worked in what I wound up doing that was like a little bit unique, and it was truly for survival. It wasn't because I was like, had forethought on how the industry was changing, but I also was like parallel pathing live action producing or line producing with post-producing. So I would do a lot of like, uh, I'd work as like a coordinator in the production office during the day. And then I would do like overnight um, edit work or even late night editing work. So like I'd be doing anything from like ingesting and organizing media and prepping edits for senior editors to um, actually cutting promos or like when they first started putting stuff on the internet, uh, (laughs) they'd be like, okay, just like throw that project at Eli. And then that parallel path with me like getting more um autonomy to lead post jobs at the same time that I was getting the opportunity to production manage and line produce and so then what happened was uh I would just do both so by the time I was like line producing live action shoots it was also like just natural to me to post produce them and see them full funnel and I didn't know that that was rare quite frankly until you know probably four years in (laughs) When somebody was like, oh, you are also post-producing all of your work? <laughs> so you you must have had that young person energy hustle to be juggling two, two things at yeah. once like that. And you were, you were freelancing, right, all this time? Yeah, I was mostly, mm-hmm. yeah, it was pretty much all freelance. I did have a staff position in production coordinating and management at um, Sesame Street for a little mm-hmm. while. But 
most like of my career been freelance, but it was, I would say it was mostly hinged on the fact that New York is crazy expensive. Yeah. And, you know, my mom is a single mother and <laughs> we don't come from a, you know, generational wealth or anything like that. So there was nobody that could help support me. I had to pay my own bills. Yeah. I had to be able to like make it in, in New York and, you know, share a studio apartment with, you know, a crazy roommate and <laughs> go through all of that. But it also meant like working seven days a week and having a day job and a night job and like saying yes to every opportunity. And like as hard as it was, and when I think about it now, I just get so tired because I'm like, wow, I did not sleep for like years pretty much. But I, uh, or I didn't sleep very often, I should say. <laughs> I got used to like five hours a night, you know, four yeah. hours a night. But it also like I had so much opportunity and privilege that came from it that it's like I can't complain because it was totally worth it and it allowed me to be where I am now yeah um and I wouldn't change it or trade it out for anything do you feel that your experience in film school led you left you rather with a very clear guide as to okay once you leave here's how you go get those opportunities to start at the PA level and work your way up or did you just figure that out on your own once you got there? I figured that out on my own once I got there. My film program was so, it was run by the former head of like AFI. And so he, at the time, and I don't think he's there anymore, but it was so creative focused and it was like, honestly, a blast. But would I, that, I probably wouldn't do that again. I would just go straight into um, the workplace. I don't think college is like, necessary for this particular field it just it's different for everyone and like you pick so much up in just practical experience and kind of like working through job to job that I find I know a lot of people who never went to college and are doing you know just as well or if not are further along in their careers so I feel like I would have figured it out regardless but on the other side of the coin maybe for my own like emotional development and maturity it was good for me to have those four years to kind of learn how to stand on my own two feet Mm. um but you know who can say (laughs) yeah I mean hindsight right like you just never know but but okay so like you Miami's also a big city so it's not like you're going from a small town to New York so but but getting there you know did you have any contacts how did you it seems like you were able to quickly sort of rise in the ranks of the traditional sort of PO path. Um, so will you, will you speak to that a little bit? And then I'm curious, just as a quick overall overview of the differences between the kind of producer who oversees production and the line producing that goes with it versus someone who does post, because often it is broken up into two different positions and it is rare yeah. to have one producer who does both. Um, okay, so I didn't know anybody. I have family up here in, you know, New York, New Jersey, Philly. Um, but either than that and like having a place to kind of like live for a temporary period of time. Um, I stayed on Staten Island for like my first two months in New York. <laughs> I had no uh no contacts, no nothing. So what I did is I truly just Googled every production company or production resource that I could find. I made a spreadsheet, I reached out to everybody and sent them resumes or um emailed their office assistants and office coordinators um, or production coordinators or people who would typically be looking for PAs, um, posted on Mandy and Staff Me Up and ever all of the usual outlets. And then I went 
in person, which I don't recommend now. <laughs> I think it was like 13 years ago was it's like different. endearing. Different. I don't think that would like really work out as well yeah. as it as it did. Like they let me into NBC and I'm like, that would never happen. That would literally never happen in today's yeah. world. But um, yeah, I literally went in person for like a week and just went to like anything in my like top list of places that I wanted to work. Um, I wound up having this like really great conversation with the HR um, the head of HR at Sesame Street, actually, who then hired me like three years later when she had an opening. Wow. So <laughs> it was a really interesting, very shameless and almost like ignorant uh, approach to how to get a job. But at the end of the day, it worked out. So I started to get free freelance PA jobs from there, mostly in like really bad uh, reality television. But, you know, who was going to judge at that point yeah. I needed a paycheck yeah, <laughs> and the sure. experience so I was just eager and excited and uh you know I would do anything yeah I mean I think that's definitely like one of the keys to it right it's it's like you don't know the relationships you're going to form in those jobs that may not look or feel like the path necessarily mm -hmm. but it's a it's a foot in the door to get where you're going and I think all of those experiences are so valuable to shape like oh, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to rise the ranks in this specific sect of the industry. Like, I want to go over yeah. here. And I think all of it is is copy. You know, it's all information. It's all just helping guide your path if you're sort of, like, looking ahead, I think. Yeah, for sure. And it's like, if you don't have the exposure, the access, or, like, even just a little taste of it, how do you, how do you know? Yeah. And, I mean, I didn't know that I wanted to be a producer and I didn't even realize that I was producing until I was like full on production managing. Mm. Then it kind of hit me like, oh, this is actually my path and these things <laughs> that I love and that I'm good at. That means I'm going to be a producer. And it kind of dawned on me as like, oh, like Eureka. Oh, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, it didn't, it wasn't just like, I'm going to work in production. I'm going to do anything that I can do in production. It was like more, it finally became more pointed. Why producing then? So I realized that the things that I love are the things that most other people hate. So organizing, spreadsheets, logistics, juggling a lot of things all at once. Like I love to find order in the chaos. Um, and I also love to uh, network and talk to different um, people. I love to talk to every department and have like a little taste of what they're doing and uh, a line of sight on how it all is coming together from end to end. And it just made sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then – when you found out that that was a viable, legit career path and you're like, oh, like this is a thing people do for money. Did you then set out to say, all right, I'm production managing now and here's where I think I want to go. I want to do features or commercials. Like, did you have this sort of overview? Not for a while. I would say initially it was just I want to production manage and get as wide of an experience as possible between – I was in television at the time um, and then moved into commercials after that and music videos and short-form content, branded, documentary, and just really tried to get a breadth of experience. Um, and then when it happened – when I moved into line producing because I was freelance, I was frankly – also in the same boat of just having a variety of experience and exposure. The only area that I haven't really gone in is feature length film. So mm -hmm. I've done short film or I've done 
um, narrative uh, projects that are like 30 minutes, 40 minutes or less, but nothing beyond that. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the, that's the only area that I haven't really dabbled in. I've done uh, game design. I've done uh, VR. I've done <laughs> like 360, like all kinds of other like technology and, and areas, but specifically in that short form length or space. Um, but that's also another thing where it probably only happened or I only had those opportunities because of having the live action and post overlap. Will you speak to that then, the, the post that just generally how that typically works and how what you were doing, what how and why it was so unique? Yeah, so the old model, I would say, because I think it's less less unique now than it was when I was starting out, um, was that there was your live action line producer and then a post supervisor, post producer for the the post half of the project. And it was always like you handed over your darlings. Like you you just turned in your hard drive and you leave. And that's it. Production is wrapping out their job in there. Um, they're pretty much walking away from the project at that point. Um, and the difference being that like a line producer obviously is managing everybody that's going to be there from uh, for the actual shoot itself. And the post producer, the post supervisors overseeing the editors, the um, color sound mix finishing, they're like staffing up and overseeing the budget for all the post execution, which from a logistical planning perspective or skill set is not, I don't find radically different from line producing. It's just different tools. It's different resources. It's an indoor like closer to a nine to five job, although there's many late nights and early mornings on post as well. Um, yeah. But instead of, you know, talking about how many grip and electrics you're going to have on set, it's, you know, how many um, senior producer or senior editors do you need? Do you need graphics, uh, 2D animation, 3D animation? Is there Nuke, Flame, Maya involved? Is there um, any kind of like VFX elements whatsoever for that matter? I color and and finishing in particular and, and um, essentially giving that gloss at the end of the project. And, and that can really, honestly, it doesn't matter how well you produce or shoot a project. If you put terrible color on it and terrible audio, all of a sudden that pristine, uh, that pristine project looks real cheap real quick. Um, yeah. So it's also really important to <laughs> maintain the integrity and the value of the production but they um often were not the same person because of the I, I would say the network of uh contacts and resources but also just a general understanding of post workflow it's a lot more technical minded it's a lot more like uh tangible I would say like with um technology and, and computers and the different software that is available and then the work streams between those softwares to make sure things communicate um and are prepared and turned over for each phase of post it's a lot easier now with like adobe creative cloud for example where things are the software cross communicates naturally or intrinsically it's built for that it's built you're built to swing into after effects and pro tools and come back into premiere it's not as big of a struggle but when I was first starting out it wasn't so integrated that work stream wasn't there so every time you got through your one portion or one work stream you had to make sure everything was prepped and cleaned up and tightened up so it was delivered to the next team perfectly um because right. if anything's missing it's like the whole thing can be thrown off uh and I'm, yeah. I'm trying to think of like a metaphor 
that would help for this. <laughs> I'm like, um, it's like a bunch of like loose noodles and you've got to keep them all in the bowl. <laughs> that works. I'll go with that. Yeah. yeah, I think it's interesting because when you understand the post process and you do it well, it also informs heavily how you then set up a production, right? Yeah. How you bid a project, especially in the commercial space. Like all of it only makes you a stronger, better producer. So no experience, even if it is highly technical and not necessarily your forte, understanding that and having a taste of that is no different than checking with the grips and what they're doing and what art department needs. Like all of it informs the whole. And it's interesting because if you read books about producing, there are a few um, you know, just like on the theory of producing and the OG producers when film started, you really only had one to two producers for a project for its entirety. It was the person who developed the idea all the way to its death, you know, whenever it got released. And somewhere along the way, as the industry expanded, it's like they started compartmentalizing these positions, you know, which is great because in a way it created all, a lot more jobs for everybody. But I think because technology has advanced so much and now gives you the ability to do so much remotely and so much more quickly that it's actually better to have the same person overseeing it throughout so you don't have the miscommunication of a person like jumping into a thing and being like, oh, where's this file or why don't we have this thing? And you can be like, oh, yeah, this I was there. I remember. Like, you know what <laughs> I mean? It just has like it. And also it moves so much more quickly that. It, it makes sense that that's we would sort of be reverting back to that old school model across all the different sects, you know, because I know you are mostly in the sort of commercial ads branded space as opposed to these long narratives that I'm generally a part of that just take, you know, years and years to complete. It's a different <laughs> marathon of sorts. So I do believe that the people who like the youngins up and coming who are super well-versed and can kind of like shoot and edit and do everything on their own and understand the nuances of that from a base level are much further ahead in many ways because they're just so much more tapped into the technology and how fast it's moving. So makes me feel like a grandma a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but it's honestly. like we all have to be like multi-hyphenate nowadays yeah oh yeah like when i was coming up if i said i did more than two things people would be like why now if you just do one thing people look at you like you're a weird person <laughs> and it's weird to have that change in like you know relatively close to 10 years time honestly i think it's even shorter than that i had this many weird jobs along the way I worked as a makeup artist. I did like video editing. I learned basic Final Cut back when Final Cut was still the premier editing software. And and I learned I like basic code, all of this random, just like basic stuff that I now have this preliminary understanding of all of it that is super, super helpful, you know? Well, if you know the fundamentals, though, that's like generally enough of a foundation, yeah. I think. Yeah. Like you just understand kind of like the way that the road is going to need to go. Yeah, for sure. So how would you define a producer? Uh, I think a producer is a logistical mastermind. They're a savvy communicator. They are the gatekeeper and provider of information and, and a great connector, honestly, between resources and people um, to uh, anything that it takes to get a project made. And the strongest producers that I know, in my opinion, are the ones that always look for the road forward and don't just say no. Instead, they say, well, what 
what would it take or how how could we make this happen? So I would also say that producers have a lot of grit and a lot of intentionality to just milk the best uh, options out of any any project to make it make it as good as it can possibly be. Yeah, great answer. I, I would agree. The kinds of humans that are drawn into this producing thing, I'm fascinated by them. I feel like they're my like little tribe of people because I'm like, oh, you're like one of me. Where did you come from? What's your story? What's your secret? How'd you get here? <laughs> what do you know? Um, but I'm just fascinated by it because it is. It is so much thankless work oftentimes that goes on behind the scenes. Um, and I, I think it's so incredibly important to shine a light on these experiences and have these conversations. And every one of these conversations is just another great reminder of that of the grit of the hustle of like the the forward momentum you constantly have to have no matter what you're doing and it's why I personally love sort of getting to hop around between doing short form stuff and going to the DR producing a commercial then being on a feature for six months and then doing a doc like I just I love kind of getting to do all of it because you learn so much every time from the the differences of like, okay, you have a team this big and now you have a team this big and now you have a team this big and you're in a different country. Like, how are you going to constantly be pivoting? And I think it speaks to the people that, like you said earlier, thrive in that chaos of like trying to stand still in the middle of the the storm, so to speak. You know? <laughs> no, it's like, we, I always say that like, whenever anything goes wrong on a shoot, Everyone knows who the producer is. Everyone. But if everything goes great and it's a well-oiled machine, it's you don't really hear anything. <laughs> and nobody's like, wow, that was so smooth. That was like such a great job. Or, you know, sometimes they are department heads and the longstanding relationships we build. And like I hear that a lot more now. But when I first started producing, I would say it was not very common practice. So, like if everything went according to plan, it went super smooth. It's just like, okay, cool, great. Yeah, it's nice to see that, like, maybe change a little bit, like the further I get in my career. I'm on a mission to to do that. You know, for me, like on all the sets I'm, I'm a part of or that I get to run, the best compliment someone can give me is that it just it, it feels effortless. It, there's just an ease about it all. There isn't this stress or this tension. There's always going to be problem solving in real time. That is production. Mm -hmm. But to be able to keep your cool and be compassionate and still be kind through it all is is the thing you know so to say hey this is a good vibe on this set like to me that's that's the highest compliment especially when it is coming from like a client or somebody who isn't normally on set all the time to kind of have that barometer they just kind of feel like oh things are just like moving forward and it's already lunch and like hmm, you know <laughs> <It's> nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly yeah. I, I really love how you said that where it's like making it seem effortless because I'm always like the production office is like the safe space, right? That's like if we're dealing with something or things are stressful, like that's where we talk about it. It's like with our people, like with your PM or your PC and like you're troubleshooting, you're problem solving. But what you bring on set and what you show the rest of the team will bleed out like an infection and it can either be a good one or it can be a bad one. And I feel like that's something to be really minded of and is probably really good advice for a young producer coming up is to even if you're you're rattled and things seem a little bit out of control or are exploding to just try to keep that to yourself and to your safe space with your production team and don't put it on the director or the creatives or or the crew because you're going to fix it and you're going to figure it out and they don't need to know that the problem even happened most of the time and they're going to focus on doing their jobs and doing their part that's really where their energy should be yeah. and and that like energy shift or the way that you set that tone and and 
a crew environment is just so integral. It's so important to a successful shoot. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a tremendous responsibility and it's a big energetic exchange. It's why I love talking to producers and and learning how they practice self-care and how they kind of shed all of this because you're constantly taking on the baggage and the energy of everything that is, is just comes up with the job, you know, and we're pushing this boulder uphill. Like you must keep it all under control all the time. But at the end of the day, we are humans and we're flawed and we're losing our shit behind the scenes. And we're, you know, in the PO crying because it's just a lot of stress. And so, but taking that sort of like expelling it from your body, you know, and from your soul without putting it on people. I think that's the way you navigate without becoming like a cynical, bitter asshole, personally. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's true, though. I mean, I think uh, that's all super valid and way resonant. I always say it's like building a village because you're like, you're like employing different little villagers to like put a little economic system together. (laughs) So like each job, you're like just trying to create like a functioning society and you're like the mayor of the town. That's probably a children's storybook in there with like the For tentacle sure. monster in the yeah. town. We should write that. There's I would a love side that project. I'm down. <laughs> love side projects. But yeah. so then, I mean, on that note, how do you practice self care? Like you've been in this business now. What? Oh God, my like whole whole life, I guess, if we count from childhood, but professionally for 13 years. Yeah. So 13 years, you're still here. You have a smile on your face. You have a great attitude. What's the secret? (laughs) Uh, I would say first and foremost, it's that I love it and I've always loved it. And it was, I was lucky that I knew early on what I wanted to do, or at least the vertical that I wanted to work in. And Uh, that hasn't really shifted or changed. I still just love this mode of storytelling and I'm so passionate about it and passionate about the different ways that it changes Um, and the way that technology shifts and grows. Like that all just ignites me and excites me and makes me want to just keep doing it and finding new ways to do what we do. And um, that hunger is just still very like verdant in me. (laughs) So that probably is the biggest part of it um, because I haven't honestly been great about self-care historically in my career. I would say especially starting out when I was telling you about those first few years working essentially around the clock as much as possible. How many times I like slept at a production office, frankly, because I only had two hours between my night shift ending from on the post side to having to be back in the bullpen coordinating. And so I would just go in Mm -hmm. like the sound mix room and take a nap and you know, hope nobody noticed that I was wearing the same clothes, um, which they probably did, uh, you know, and I, I don't think that that's like a healthy lifestyle for the most part. And I, yeah. maybe there would have been a, a road forward where I could have that exposure and that experience. But I think I hit the gas really hard for at least like the first eight or nine years of my career where I never mm-hmm. I didn't take a break. I missed Every holiday, I'm a, I did not take a vacation. I feel like I'm young to be in the role that I'm in now, and it's because of the sacrifice of uh, my personhood. And I don't know that that is something that I would project or recommend forward because it's so. I'm I'm now like in my mid 30s and having like this realization that like taking care of ourselves and our hearts and our personhood and extracting that stress is integral to making us better at our jobs ultimately and it's also just what we're living for right Mm -hmm. and killing myself like that like I did for the first many years of my career was not great (laughs) 
So I would say that's a very long-winded answer of like, what do I do now for self-care is I'm trying to create more space for my time and like be more protective of that before um, or even in the more like say three or four years ago. So recently, even if I was like, oh, I'm going to take a vacation or I'm going to, you know, take a half day to go to the doctor. I was just still plugged into my phone and answering emails and prepping another job. Uh, I'd be like, oh, well, I'm just going to soft prep while I'm on vacation. And we all know what that means as a producer. Now you're tied to your computer the whole time. You're not there. You're not in the moment. There's no such thing as soft prep. Like once you're plugged (laughs) into the machine, you're plugged in. It's just nonstop. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm going to actually, I think if I'm going to be totally honest and like open, I don't know that I really like been great about self-care until maybe the last like two years because I I would say up until then maybe I started to trickle out of it where I wasn't like pulling overnights but I unless it was an overnight shoot in which case I was but I would say more recently I tried to make time for exercise and for my mornings in particular um you know our office doesn't start until 10 a.m so that is a little bit later than like normal I would say or like most places are they you know try to start around 9 or 9 30 but that does give me a window time in the morning that can just be for me and sometimes that's mm-hmm. reading about uh something that's shifting in the industry or lately it's been like spending time just catching up on like what everybody else is doing during COVID but it can be spent however I want it could also just be like watching YouTube videos or uh, looking at pictures of puppies because that's what I need to start my day I've been really good lately about not just like starting my work day at like eight or nine because I feel like it and instead just doing whatever else I want. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the creating of, of creation of boundaries, right? That's so important. I think when you spent most of your youth and your beginnings in this career, like going so hard and thinking you always have to be available, there's always this fear of like, if you don't get back to this person or if you're not the person first on email and first thing in the morning, like, what is that going to mean? And I do think there is a time and a place for that. You know, there is the work that you kind of have to put in and to earn your stripes. But the hope is that you can get to a place where you can, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like when you give tasks away, delegate, delegate, there we go. (laughs) When you can delegate tasks to others and you have enough of a team that you trust, they're going to handle it. And you don't need to be on every single thing on all the things. And so it's trusting, I think in yourself and ourselves that we can create those boundaries. One of the, the sort of advices I wish I could bestow on, on the up and coming people who are looking to get in the business or pivot, maybe it's someone who's a little older, it is to do that. It's to like work really hard for sure. There's going to be a lot of years that are going to suck, but understand that it's temporary and that you have to learn eventually to create these boundaries for yourself if you want to have the stamina to get to wherever it is you want to go. Oh, 100%. I think some of the fear I had early on because I you know, was predominantly freelance for most of my career was like, oh, if I say no to this job, then that's it. I'll never get another job again. And I had kind of this Mm. like, which is like crazy when I think about it now, where it's like, no, of course you're going to have another job. They're going to have another job in two weeks. Like you can just take a break. But at the time I was like, no, they're counting on me. These are my network. This is my network. These are my contacts. And like, I didn't want to say no to anything. So I said yes to everything. I did the extreme opposite. And it's like, 
that's not necessary. <laughs> it's just not. It's like yeah. you can take two weeks off. You can take a month off. Like go to Europe and just like float around Italy for a little while and try every kind of cheese, you know? Like, yes. That's fine. That's what life is about, cheese. <laughs> it is. It is about cheese. Yeah. But that the work will always be there. Like, there will always be another job. There will always be an ever-growing to-do list. So just take the time when you can and recover, and then you'll be right back at it again. Yep. In the madness of it all. So then you freelance for a really long time. And then it sounds like in the past few years, you're in house. Obviously, you're in house at Mustache now. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that transition and what that's been like. It was interesting because I, you know, you get so used to that freelance hustle. And again, not having great boundaries with self self care. I was very much like, okay, I'm going to work like seven days a week. And you're used to like 14, 15 hours a day. And so Mm -hmm. I... Uh, for the first few years of being staff, just transitioned that same mentality into my staff role uh, and was working just like crazy, like a crazy person, because that's what I had been used to. Um, thankfully, I would say since moving to Mustache in the more recent years, they ha- have a lot of a better um, boundary system, like with just not pushing for people to work on weekends. And they you know, instill that in you when you're joining the team, but also nobody's accessible on the weekends generally. If there isn't something really pressing or an urgent need of any kind, then you're not going to be able to get anything done really because nobody is going to be working with you on a Saturday. And that's awesome. (laughs) Exactly. I was like, so that makes (laughs) it really easy in a sense to just say no and walk away and, and take my weekends back. And this is the first place I've worked where I've consistently had weekends off. But it's been really nice to like just have a Saturday and be able to do whatever I want and not worry about my inbox. Yeah. Well, what made you want to go from freelance and house? I was just offered when I first went staff, I was actually, uh, I'd been living in New Orleans for a period of time. I was freelance producing down there, like permalancing really with a few different production companies. Um, and I'd been freelancing a lot with Complex and they offered me a full-time position to help build up their in-house production and post teams. Um, and so they relocated me and were like, you know, they basically were like, we'll, you know, fly you back or pay to move you back to New York. We just need you to be here in like five days because it was like they had just been bought out by Verizon. They had a a huge kind of bucket of money to staff and build out their production and post team. And just were like, do you want to move back to New York in five days? Because if so, here's a job. I was pretty ready (laughs) at that point. I'd lived in New Orleans for about like two and a half three years and I, you know, really missed New York and the hustle and had been working with so many clients and contacts from New York anyway, that it just was like, all right, let's do it. Nice. And then you were at Complex for how many years before Mustache came around? I was only there for a year. And then I moved on to another smaller production company. And then um, into Mustache about a year and a half ago or a year and some change ago. And so now what is your job title there? And what are, tell, tell us a little bit more about what that is. So I'm currently the head of production. I do also sometimes serve as like an EP kind of role. It sort of depends project to project and availability, quite frankly. But I oversee our production and post teams. And I essentially bid out and... Uh, 
craft the approach for any job that comes in. So Mustache is a, they have a creative agency side as well as production and post in-house. So we're a full service creative content agency is what we call ourselves. Um, (laughs) And so we'll do project soup to nuts. We will occasionally work in a traditional model of pocketing into a larger agency, but occasionally it's all, it's direct to brand. And a lot of what we've done recently has been more um, direct to brand. And so I'll work with uh, a lot of times directly with our clients at the very beginning um, as one of the first uh, voices they hear on a call of like what can we do and a general idea of what they're looking for? Is it video? Is it stills? Is there a print campaign? Um, is there any sort of social component? Like, what is it? What do they need? Um, we try to do as many um, full service 360 campaigns as possible because there's just so much more efficiency to that. If, uh, production is so expensive yeah. that if you're going to pay for a shoot, you might as well get as many assets out of it as possible. And so sometimes that means you're going to spend a little bit more on that production budget than you were intending, but you're going to have enough content to last you for six months. And so it's it's amortized now across a period of time that you maybe otherwise would have had to stand up two or three other independent shoots and that would cost you you know, substantially more to do. And so trying to look at like the efficiencies mm-hmm. and the savings and like really getting a package put together that makes sense for each client based on what their their need is, who their audience is, what are their KPIs, like what makes sense for them specifically. And so I work with a lot of really smart and great people on our team to just craft that out together and hopefully sell it <laughs> through to the client. Um, and then, you know, they, in theory, everything goes great. They sign off. They're like, here's a million dollars. And then I oversee it through the execution. And so I'm just making sure that from, you know, the production and the post side, we're meeting our deadlines, we're meeting, um, nothing's going awry, that I'm a resource to the uh, the teams if they need anything at all. So um, that can be crew recommendations to just talking through, hey, I've hit this hurdle and what what do you think we should do about it? And I, you know, I, I really love that because I love working with people and I love solving problems. Yeah. And commercials, they move so fast too in the, that space that you constantly have problems to solve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Always. It's just like a nature of the beast. I've done like one job in my entire career where nothing went wrong. And I still am like, was it real or was that a dream? <laughs> So how is that different from an agency producer? Will you break down like, so you have your head of production and then when a project gets greenlit, if you are outsourcing and you're bringing on a freelance team, how does that structure differ from when you do have a more traditional agency producer? Yeah. So instead, like a traditional agency would have like a an agency producer, project manager, an accounts team, business affairs advisor, and like this collection of of creative and uh, logistical management just specifically to that initial phase of the idea. Like, what are we making? And uh, is it, uh, from a creative lens, is it video? Is it um, stills or otherwise? And, And focused on that package and managing the client and what they want and need and all of that. But when it comes to the actual execution of the production, that's usually outsourced to a production company that would bid it. And that's usually a triple bid situation where the agency producer that's on that job will say, here's our boards that we've put together for our concept. Let's say it's a 30 second commercial. They'll say, hey, here's here's some boards. Here's the general concept. Here's the pitch that we put together for this TVC. And um, can you bid it out? P.S. Our budget is 
$250,000 for this one. It's production and post. Uh, so figure it out and <laughs> tell me how we can do that. Good luck. And of course, we're like, oh, that's not enough money. But we say that about anything. So right. I always say that. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Like, it could literally be $3 million. And I'd be like, but I need four. It's just how we're wired. Uh, before they have, they reach the bidding phase <laughs> with three production companies, what they'll do is actually look at, look at the boards and work with their creative team to figure out the best director option. So that's the gatekeeper, the funnel typically for a production company to attach to a commercial job or to have the opportunity to triple bid on a commercial job is through their director roster. So production companies are typically nimble and small in terms of like full term, full size staff. They're usually like sales reps and EPs. And then they have a directing roster that are their exclusive directors that they represent. And uh, what will happen is that oftentimes an agency producer will go out to a sales rep or a network um, and ask for uh, director reels for their boards or for a specific type of uh, content that they need to produce um, that will go broad and be um, blasted out and circulated to all of the different channels. And you'll put a um, production company EPs will put a uh, collection of work together that they think represents the best director on their roster. Sometimes they'll put up a couple of directors on their roster and they'll send that back through. The agency producer will call through that with their team, go through it with their creative director and pick their top three. And then those three directors in the attached production companies are the ones that are selected to bid. And so then that's where we pick up from where it was. They will be sent the agency boards um, or the agency creative and then um, be asked to put together a bid for it, a production bid, production and post bid, or maybe they'll do it separate and they'll go to a post house and a production company and ask for bids um, from each and the agency producer will oversee it through the production and post funnel. Um, the difference being that that agency producer is not a line producer. They are not a post producer. Um, a great agency producer would have that experience to at least a certain degree because they would know how to read a bid or know how to read a budget and know what is going to make sense and what's not, where things are inflated and where they're not, and like the assurance that they're getting the quality and standard of production that they need based on knowing their creative team and their client intrinsically. I, it's not a requirement either. And most agency producers don't come from a line producing background. They come from an agency background. And so they'll work their way up through project management or um, integrated production in a way, or, or they'll find another, another funnel up. Um, but it's not through uh, on the ground, hands-on line producing experience, typically. Y'all, like Eli just took you through like, it's five minute what I took me like years to learn in five minutes. <laughs> like it, it was such a thorough explanation. Thank you. Like, yes, 100%. I hope anyone listening who has ambitions to get into the commercial world and understand it and also how it has changed so much because so much is client direct nowadays. Like a lot of the middleman is getting eliminated because budgets are getting even smaller that they, that they like rewind this, well, they can't rewind because it's not tape, but you know, they play it back and like listen to this gospel again because it was really well put. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, you know, you are more, I would say, plugged into the advertising side of things than I am. But in this COVID times that we are in, and now we're in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement, how have you seen these changes happening on the inside from 
clients, client sensibilities with all of these changes that our world is facing? Well, I would say, well, there's two things and both are a lot to unpack, quite frankly, but I think it's probably better. I think it makes more sense or I'd like to start with Black Lives Matter because I think that's such an important movement that's happening right now. And the one thing that the one nice thing I can say about quarantine uh, is that due to the time or space that we've had, when you think about how many people just aren't at work right now, allowed us to have that space for this movement. So if I can say one good thing that came out of it, it would be that it would be that it allowed people to march and to be present and to be active participants in what needs to happen. Because the reality is that Black Lives Matter has existed for a long time and has been making a lot of noise for a long time. But part of it was that like there wasn't a an available participation of of white people, quite frankly, to be loud and noisy and to give a damn. Yep. And there's something to be said about just having the space to pay attention because this is it's not like this just happened or that George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or any of these things are news stories. These are stories that have been happening for hundreds of years. Yep. And we finally had a moment where enough people started to pay attention we have to change. We have to just change. It's like they always say it's not a diet, it's a lifestyle. And I hate to like use that example because it seems diminishing to this topic. But it's the (laughs) idea that like we have to change our lifestyle. We have to change how we communicate. We have to change how we produce content and how we tell stories and who we hire. And it can't be something that's like a hot moment. It has to be something with enactable change. And it's nice to see other people give a damn about this. Right. Yeah, it's unfortunate that it's taken this long and this many lives, you know, for people to wake up. The real change has to happen from within and in the day to day and in our small communities, right? It's like it's like throwing a pebble in 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 the pond, like we'll make little ripples, but if everybody's making little ripples, we can make a big big wave. Who can you actually reach through conversations, through your work, through your relationships to continue to have this be a conversation so it isn't just a moment in time. It isn't just like a Black Lives Matter spirit week, you know? Yeah. When I moved into producing and I realized that like I had power in that role and who I put on a crew and the teams I I put together, the directors that I put forth um, and, you know, started to see like, hey, like our sets like aren't as diverse as maybe they should be. And another thing that I try to say and just point out specifically in our industry is like, it is not enough to hire a black PA. That is not enough. That is a scapegoat, if you will. It is much more important to hire a black director or, um, you know, a queer production designer and to really diversify the crew. And there's so much talent out there. And some of it's just not having an access point or people making up the excuse of not knowing where to look because they've only been exposed to a network of people that are predominantly white. And so something I've been working on because I, I listen to a lot of Brandon K. Good and I would like to be an effective ally. <laughs> I love his like Instagram stories. I'm always like, you are saying it so well. I get it. Yeah. I hear you. Um, but yeah, being it's important to me to be effective, not just be good, not just say the right thing or have empathy, but to actually 
impart change. And so I've been working with uh, a few different partners or different organizations that predominantly represent um, people of color, low income, um, people that are moving into the production industry and just finding every access point as po- that we possibly can to build a roster of talent to source from. So I'd already been working with Free the Work or Free the Bid and putting that together for us. But now I want to take it a step further of where can we um, make sure that we're tapping into to have those diverse leadership roles represented on set? Because I think about like when I was a kid and like running around those sets as like a child actor, there were not, there were no women, there were no black people. It was just a bunch of white dudes, you know? And if it weren't for my mom telling me that I could do it, I don't know that I would have known that that was a job or a path for me because nobody looked like me, nobody. So I would hope that, we can provide opportunities so that the next little kid (laughs) or the next PA who's not even a little kid, the young adult on set is looking up and they are seeing themselves in a role that matters, you know, and in a position that matters on set. Yeah. And the, the truth is we need it. We need all those voices. We need all those perspectives across every single rung of the ladder, because I think you touched on advice early on into this conversation. So you you have faced some challenges, obviously, in your career, and you've worked really hard and you've sustained. So in those dark times where things weren't going well for you, what was it that kept you going? What was it that kept you showing up for yourself and pushing through? I think it's my tribe. I have a really great collection of women producers that some of which are still on their, you know, journey into full producing or learning to produce and some of which are already there. It's a good spectrum. We've we've grown the group over the years, but yeah. I've had other women around me that were uh in the mud or alongside me fighting for the same thing and I think that camaraderie of in solidarity, quite frankly, to just have somebody to talk to and to cry with and to uh, remind you that as hard as it is today, tomorrow it's gonna it is can be totally different and you can overcome this. And uh, I think that's so important. And like the people that we keep around us and that we invite into our hearts are so important and they're so valuable Mm. in a career field like this where you know like you were saying who you are in real in the real world is the same person that you bring to the table for any given shoot it is all bleeding over into itself and so having those key people that you can go to and that have your back and no matter what are going to make sure that you're okay and that you're taken care of and that you can rely on them. You know, they're going to bring you soup when you're sick. They're going to talk you off the ledge and you're going to do it for them too. And that's just so integral. And I think, um, yeah, I think that like, at least when I was growing up, there was this like public, perception that like oh women are competitive with each other and like women are catty and it's like that's just not been my experience like the women in my life have just supported each other and like built each other up and every time one of us elevates or rises to the next place we are looking back at who we can bring with us and who we can elevate with us and I think that that's so resonant it's so important and at the same time they're also like 
my some of my best friends women have such a great capacity for compassion and empathy and and it's not to say that men don't either I'm just I'm a woman I'm partial and you know (laughs) I don't think I'd be anywhere near where I am today if it wasn't for everyone around me shepherding me and and reminding me of my worth and my value and shaking it into me when I maybe lost sight of it myself yeah beautiful well said well I I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share a little bit of your story and your perspectives with me and the listeners. It's what it's all about. And so thank you for showing up and being amazing. <laughs> thank you for having me. Of course. It went, it went fast. <laughs> and that's this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you don't already, please subscribe, rate, review on Apple, on iTunes, on Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcast. Follow me on the socials. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Life with Kaka. And I'll see you next week. Beijos. <laughs>